Hey guys, this is Anna. So before we get today, get on with the show today, let's hear from our sponsor. Hey everybody, this is the Ramblings of a Transgender Christian Podcast. I am your host, Anna Hudak. So today we are going to be reading part four of Rosa Luxemburg's 1905 article, Socialism and the Churches. <clears throat> so basically, um, so every Thursday episode, uh, which by the way, if you subscribe on Patreon for just one buck a month, you can get every Thursday episode a week early and ad-free. But yeah, so uh, every uh, so the last few Thursdays, we've been going through this article. We've been done parts one, two, and three so far. We're on part four. Uh, basically, so far we've talked about how back in 1905, um, uh, so she, so this, so Rosa lives in Tsarist Russia, um, and she's talking about how you know the clergy was very pro Tsarist, you know Tsarist government, you know, and they were speaking out against the Social Democrats who wanted to reform society, who wanted to make it more equal, you know, make it more, you know, make it better for the proletariat, aka the working class, you know, instead of just it being you know the elites at the top, and then you know. Then ninety nine percent of the working class, you know, living in poverty. <clears throat> you know, they wanted to lift up the impoverished, and but the clergy kept saying no, and it's hacking these social democrats. And so basically, Rosa is is going through the history of the church to figure out. Okay, so how did the church in its earliest days be so communist? You know, I mean, this was like. One of the first communist communities, you know, was the early church. How did they come from that? Caring about the poor, telling the rich, no, you will give to the poor whatever they need. You know, to being basically the biggest shills for the rich and the elite in the society. Um, and so that is really picking up in this part, which is part four. We are really going to dig into how the church, how the clergy became in bed with the elite in society. We're really going to be focusing on that in today's episode. Um, but yeah, so there's that. Um, also, another thing, um, once again, if you are a content creator, whether you run a blog, YouTube channel, podcast, or whatever, you know, just make any sort of content online, I would love to advertise for your content here on the show. I would love to be able to move away from monetary advertising. Um, but I do want to still run some kind of ads uh, but preferably for other people's content. So I do have a video and an audio version. You can make an ad for either the audio or the video or both. Does not matter. Just contact me. My information is in the description below. Um, would love to hear from y'all. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that's what something I would like to do. Just want to throw that out there. Probably not going to do this. Today maybe be last day. Throw that out there. I don't know. I haven't heard anything yet from anybody. So, but anyway, that's besides the point. Anyway, let's uh, dive on deep in today's article. So once again, like usual, you can find the article in the show notes or the YouTube description. Um, and so yeah, let's dive on in part four. In the beginning, when the number of Christians was small, the clergy did not exist in the proper sense of the word. The faithful, who formed an independent religious community, united together in each city. They elected a member responsible for conducting the service of God and carrying out the religious rites. Every Christian could become the bishop or prelate. 
These functions were elective, subject to recall, honorary, and carried no power other than that which the community gave of its own free will. So in other words, basically, it was completely democratic. You know, so it's kind of like how, you know, how we do, you know, run the government in theory here in America, you know. In theory, you know, anybody can become president, you know, or become a House representative or a Senate member, you know, in theory, you know. Uh, it's just, you know, you get to select your peers, you know. Uh, you're basically just, you know, selecting one of your peers, you're voting for one of your peers is how it's said, you know. But, like, in the early church, that's, like, actually how it was, you know, like, you know, like, you didn't need to go to seminary. I mean, we didn't even have seminary back then. But, you know, like, it was literally just which of your peers do you want kind of, you know, kind of running everything for a while. And even then, it was not permanent. It was just a temporary thing, you know. You could say, you know, if, the, if, if you know, the person was failing the permission or, you know, um, do, or, you know, like, was not a very good leader or whatever, you know, they could all come together, you know, and say, hey, you're not the leader anymore. Somebody else is. Get out of that leadership position. You know, it's completely democratic. There were, you know, it's not like today are super fucking hierarchical, especially in like the Orthodox and Catholic churches and even in some Protestant denominations, um, you know, where, you know, let's be honest. In most churches, the church doesn't really have much of a say. The congregants don't really have much of a say in the leadership for a lot of the time. Especially who's the pastor. Some do, but many don't. And even if they kind of do, it's usually, you know, more up to the elder board than it is to the congregation. The congregation is just there to kind of, you know, be the final word, you know. like To just make sure that the elder board hadn't kind of gone completely off the rails. You know, that's kind of how it works today, even in the more, you know, democratic churches. Anyway, continuing on the article. In proportion as the number of the faithful increased and the communities came more numerous and richer, to run the business of the community um, and to hold office became an occupation which demanded a great deal of time and full concentration. As the office bearers could not carry out these tasks as, at the same time as for, as following for private employment, the custom grew up of electing among, from among the members of the community an ecclesiastic who was exclusively entrusted with these functions. Therefore, these employers of the community had to be paid for uh, exclusive uh, devotion to its affairs. Thus, therefore, within the church a new order of employees of the church which separated itself from the main body of the faithful, the clergy. Parallel with the inequality between the rich and the poor, there arose another inequality, that between the clergy and people. The ecclesiastics, ecclesiastics at first elected among equals with a view to performing a temporary function, raised themselves to form a caste which ruled over people. So basically, the church grew. And during that time, the church grew so much that they decided that uh, they wanted somebody whose full job would be, like, literally being, you know, leading the church would be for full job. It'd be for full-time job. And so, therefore, 
the church had to, you know, the congregants had to give money to support this clergy. And because of this, there grew inequality in the church. The leader of the church was no longer equal to the others. In fact, he's now above. This was the beginning of the hierarchy in the church. Because remember, previously, this was all completely democratic, you know. The leader really didn't have much to say, you know. They basically were just the ones who did the rites, you know. Came, you know, you, the ones who did most of the sermons, you know. Kind of just kept everything moving. But now, this was a person who had actual power, you know. The leader had actual power for the first time. And they first they formed a clergy class, raising, elevating themselves among above the congregants, creating even more inequality in the church. You know, there's already the rich and poor. You know, which originally there hadn't been really all that much difference kind between because the poor could just demand the rich of the rich any time to give him stuff. But now that's already gone. You know, that's been gone for a while. You know, by this point. The rich, you know, is separating itself from the poor. You know, and not really listening. But now, also, there's a leader who has actual power over everybody. You really can't order, the, you can't really order, you know, the clergy around now. And yeah, that's, let's be honest, really is kind of a problem if we're being completely honest. Um... It's not really the way things are supposed to be, um, you know. While you know, like probably the, my favorite church I've been to, and I'm still glad I'm out of that church because it was super Christian conservative that hates LGBT people, you know. But I mean, I'm saying so. I'm saying this is my favorite relative to the other churches because understand I've only like been to super conservative pretty fundamentalist churches, for the most part, um, where the two pastors were not full-time pastors. They had other jobs, you know? This was basically, you know, just for a secondary job, and they basically, you know, supported themselves doing other things, and they still were able to find time to tend to the congregation. You know, we had two pastors who were equal, you know? It was not like, you know, how many churches do it, which is like, you know, there's the main pastor, then there's like the assistant pastor, or, you know, the vice pastor or whatever, you know. No, they were both equal. They were both the pastor. They were both the pastor, both of them. Um, You know, and they completely shared everything in common together, you know, in terms of, you know, their responsibilities, you know. Now, one of them's just left the church because they didn't like the direction the church is going. But uh, from my understanding, I don't go there anymore. This is why I hear from my parents. I haven't been there in a year. I haven't even been to church, period, in a year um, at this point. Because, um, frankly, there's really no place I could go. Because uh, the few LGBT-affirming churches in the area are very liturgical, and I don't do the liturgy um, at all. I don't subscribe to that. Um, you know, but like, I love that about the church. You know, that was the one thing I loved about that church was they both had their own actual jobs, you know? And this was basically something they did out of the love they had for the church, you know? They poured their time and money 
the time and money they had left, you know, that they had left over because they loved the church so much. And, and it's just how churches really should be, if we're being kind of honest. There really isn't a good reason for this, you know, um, full-time pastoring thing. You know, because it just removes yourself from the church so much more, especially because a lot of these people, you know, let's be honest, they often go straight from seminary to full-time and the thing. You know, they don't have much time actually understanding what it is that, you know, their congregants are going through. They don't have much time, they don't really spend, if any, time being a part of the working class. It's hard. How do you relate to your congregants if you go straight from seminary to being full-time ministry? You know, it's... I like I I'm sorry I really don't like that I, I it's even as a you know even before that like it always just seemed wrong that a pastor would just be you know we we just basically be bailing out this pastor to just sit around in an office writing sermons and every now and then meeting with people it's like shouldn't that be done in your you know your free time you done out of your love for the church like I don't know like I really have a problem I I have a serious genuine problem. With churches where they have this full-time pastor who just sits there and cooped up in an office all day. You know, away from, you know, the world. I, I, I really have a serious problem with that. But that's just me. I recognize that probably the vast majority of you listening don't have that problem and you probably think I'm a complete fucking nut job. Which, yeah, I mean, welcome to the party. Everybody does. Um... In more ways than one. Anyway, yeah, that's just me. Continuing on to this article. The more numerous the Christian communities became in the state of the... Sorry. The more numerous the Christian communities became in the cities, not state, um, of the enormous Roman Empire, the more the Christians, persecuted by the government, felt the need to unite to gain strength. The community, scattered all over the territory of the empire, therefore organized themselves into one single church. This unification was already a unification of the clergy and not of the people. Uh, for in the 4th century, the ecclesiastics of the communities met together in consuls. The first council took place at Nicaea in 325. In this way, there was formed the clergy in order apart and separated from the people. The bishops of the stronger and richer communities took the lead at the consuls. This is why the bishop of Rome soon placed himself at the head of the whole of Christianity and became the pope. Thus, an abyss separated the clergy, divided up in the hierarchy from the people. So yeah, I mean, so basically. Why did the church it before Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire? The Christians, you know, were still being heavily persecuted, you know. I think the Colosseum, you know, and shit like that were even, you know, all throughout the place, you know. Just Christians were not accepted pretty much anywhere. And so, you know, a lot of them felt, you know, wanted to have solidarity, you know. Kind of feel like they weren't alone. They weren't the only church. And so we sought to kind of, you know, kind of create, you know, you know, like our own union, you know, our own denomination, our own group of churches, you know, our own affiliation, you know, 
kind of like how we do things today, you know. A lot of churches will create affiliations with other churches, you know. I used to, my, you know, I, the church I grew up, you know, I went to, you know, where the pastors didn't work full time. They were, you know, my church was Mission Church here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And it was a part of the FEC or Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. And there's a lot of churches who are part of it for just, you know, non-denominational churches who decided, you know what, we want to work together, you know, be a part of a group together. You know, we may have different theological beliefs from each other, you know. Um, but, you know, we want to work together for, you know, together, you know, not be separated, you know, we want to be in union with other churches. Um, you know, and even before that, you know, I used to go to another FAC church, um, called Highland, Highland Gospel, and, you know, and the FAC was a genuine union, you know, I remember we did Bible quizzing, you know, we would get together with a bunch of other FAC quizzes to churches to do that, you know. Um, here in Fort Wayne, you know, every year, you know, like a bunch of the churches and all the Fort Wayne churches and I think even now Kendallville churches come together to do a big day of community service. Um, you know, they spend all morning, you know, all throughout Fort Wayne and Kendallville doing community projects, you know. And then, you know, in the afternoon, it, the entire, you know, all the congregations come together to eat and to worship together, you know, hundreds of hundreds of people together at one, you know. And that's how we did, but, you know, they're all separate churches, you know, many of the, the churches had very different beliefs, you know, these were, you know, um, you know, like this mission church I went to, mission church, much more Mennonite, it was basically a Mennonite church, okay, straight up, it was a conservative Mennonite church. Um... But, you know, it's technically non-denominational. The church we went to before, you know, is kind of, you know, a mix of Mennonite and Baptist, you know. Like, it was basically, you know, like, because it was a merging of two churches. Highland was kind of merging of two churches. One of them was more Mennonite. The other one was more Baptist. So, yeah. And as you can imagine, didn't exactly go the best. Um, the church has got problems. Um, serious, serious issues. Um, but yeah, you know, um, you know, but a lot of churches there were more Nazarene in theology or, you know, pretty straight up Baptist. Let's be honest, most non-denominational churches are basically just Baptist, you know, um, but like there was like theological divergence between them, you know. They all did have different beliefs, you know, but they came together as a union, and that's kind of what, you know, these churches wanted to do. And through doing that, they created one single church. The Catholic Church, you know, the Universal Church. And I, you know, and then, you know, uh, the Bishop of Rome, you know, as they say, became the Pope from this. You know, these, this was the founding of the Catholic Church. But because of this, you know, but, 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 you know, while, you know, but the thing was, this unification really was not felt much among the congregants. It was really only the clergy that felt this unification. Because they were the only ones who got to really meet with each other, see the other churches. You know, and... You know, they held consuls, like, at Nicaea, 
um, just to be on it's uh, yeah a pair it's yeah it's, to be honest I really don't know anything about so I can't really commentate on the Nicaea Council I know absolutely nothing about it um, nor do I really care but that's besides the point um, you know and through this they created not only just a class of the clergy but a hierarchy within that class. You know, bishops, popes, uh, isn't there something like cardinals? I'm sorry, I really don't know much about, uh, the Catholic Church and, you know, its hierarchies. Like, isn't it something like there's, like, cardinals and bishops and stuff like that? I don't know, I'm sorry. I really, and, like, I know there's, like, priests, like, aren't they the ones who, like, uh, like, heads of the churches? And the only reason I really know that is because I watched, um, Going My Way and, uh, The Bells of St. Mary's. Okay, like, Father O'Malley is great. Um, or they just call fathers. I have no idea, whatever. I'm sorry, I, I know that every Catholic listener right now is probably laughing their heads off at this stupid Protestant, stupid white American Protestant. So, okay, yeah, I get it, sorry. Don't know much about your church. Okay, the church I grew up in, you know what church I grew up in in Ohio? Christian Fellowship in Toledo. I grew up being taught that Catholics were the greatest heretics at all. They were a whole number of religion who worshipped idols. They were, and they were basically tantamount to devil worshippers. Okay? So forgive me for not knowing fucking shit about the Catholic Church. And yes, I want to make it clear. I know that's false now. I, I completely recognize that. Uh, I recognize that the Catholic Church are not devil worshippers. You do not worship idols. Um, you know, you are not a completely different religion. Um, I am one of those bench. I am one of those fence sitters who will burn in hell. Who believes that it's possible to be Christian, to be Christian, you know, and be Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox. I believe that all three of them, all three, will go to heaven. Yes, I know, burning in hell. I don't care. <laughs> Go into YouTube, into YouTube comments, go on a flame war, all of you fight together, you know, about how much I'm an idiot, you know. All you Protestants tell me I'm an idiot for thinking that Catholics could go to heaven, you know, and all you Catholics tell me I'm, a, I'm an idiot for thinking that Protestants can go to heaven, and all you Orthodox people uh, tell me how much I'm an idiot for thinking that Protestants and Catholics could go to heaven. Go ahead, I don't, I don't care. Send me emails, I don't care. Not changing my mind. Um, they're, all they're all basically just as valid, just with different beliefs and different hierarchies. Get over it. My God. I still can't believe that the Catholic Church still holds the grudge over the Reformation. Like, seriously, have you ever, like, have, like seriously, Protestants, have you ever listened to Catholic radio? Oh my God, like, I want to make it clear. That's actually like we have a Catholic radio station here, and you know, like I actually enjoy some of the programming. Not gonna lie, whenever I do listen to it, which is be like once a year. Um, but oh my god, I it's it, like I can't believe that like these still are throwing fucking like they're still mad as fuck over the Reformation. Like, 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 like it's kind of amazing, man. Like, I, I can't believe that like after several hundred years, they've still not gotten over that, man. Like, crazy to me. Um, but yeah, anyway, 
I'll, I'll, I'll shut up now before I anger my Catholic listeners too much more. I know I have some. I know I have a lot of Catholic listeners. Um, love you, by the way. I, I, I truly do. I want to make that clear. I truly do. I'm not bashing you. I'm saying all of this in love. Um, it's just crazy to me as a Protestant. Anyway, I have been rambling on way too long. This, at this, at this, uh, at this, if I continue on this pace, we're gonna be here for like almost two hours. Okay, so let's get a move on. At the same time, the economic relations between the people and the clergy underwent a great change. Before the formation of this order, all that the rich members of the church offered to the common property belonged to the poor people. Afterwards, a great part of the funds were spent on paying the clergy and running the church. Um, so in other words, originally... Anything that was given to the church was given for the benefit of the congregants, you know, most of whom who were poor, you know, so they could feed, they could shelter themselves, they could clothe themselves, you know. Now, because of, you know, the clergy, the pro, you know, pretty much everything that's given to the church is given for the benefit of the clergy, really. It's not given to the benefit of the congregation. Anyway, continuing on, when in the 4th century, Christianity was protected by the government and was recognized at Rome as being the dominant religion, the persecutions of the Christians ended and the services were no longer carried on in catacombs or in modest halls, but in churches which began to be more and more magnificently built. Because once again, and so this is, so once again, the funds are no longer, are continuing to not be given to the clergy, to the congregants, but now not just to the clergy themselves, but also, you know, to build magnificent churches and, you know, pay the taxes for them. Once again, the congregants get screwed over and left out. Um, but these expenses thus reduce the funds intended for the poor. Already in the 5th century, the revenues of the church were divided into four parts. First, the first for the bishop, the second for the minor clergy. You know, today that'd be like, you know, the second secretary, you know, the youth pastor, um, you know. You know, and if your church is big enough, then, you know, maybe like the worship leader, you know, stuff like that. Um, the third for the upkeep of the church, you know, taxes, you know, plumbers, you know, stuff like that. Um, and it was only the fourth part which was distributed among the needy. And guess what? <laughs> I could tell you from personal experience, I mean, my dad was a pastor. I am a pastor's kid. And I've also known church finances from other churches I've been in. That, for that fourth part, which is, you know, the, the, the needy part, that's always the least, okay? That's always with the leftovers. Let me tell you that, you know. That's always the smallest part. Um... Continue on. The poor Christian population received therefore a sum equal to what the bishop received for himself alone, if even that. Um, 
In course of time, the habit was lost of giving the, to the poor a sum determined in advance. Moreover, as the clergy gained in importance, the faithful no longer had control over the property of the church. The bishops gave to the poor according to her good pleasure. Gee, I wonder how much they gave and how often. Hmm. Clearly a lot, you know, totally, you know. It was, you know, I mean, not all those rich pastors, you know, those rich bishops, you know. Clearly, and for goodness of her heart, they were constantly giving big heaps of sums of money to the poor. Obviously. So no one ever. <clears throat> Except for the bishops themselves. They probably say that they were quite generous. Anyway, continuing on. The people received alms from their own clergy. But that is not all. At the beginning of Christianity, the faithful made goodwill offerings to the common stock. As soon as the Christian religion became a state religion, the clergy demanded that the guests must be brought by the poor as well by the rich. So originally, the poor didn't have to give anything. It was on the rich to do it. Because you're poor enough. We can't ask you to do that. You're barely surviving. But now it's, hey, poor... Pay up, motherfuckers. Pay up. I need my money. I need my second yacht this year. Give me your money. And we need to replace the stained glass windows. Yes, I know. We just got them installed three years ago. But have you seen that church down the church? church that church down the road? Their stained glass windows are so much nicer than ours. We need nicer stained glass windows. So pay up, pores. Um, but yeah, continuing on. So yeah, I mean, once again, the poor just continue getting screwed over. You know, it's now an imperative for the poor to give her money to the church when it never was their duty to do that to begin with. Um, but what happened? The clergy got greedy and they needed, they, so they wanted more money. They wanted to get richer, so therefore, hey poor, pay up. Gotta love that. You know, that was another thing I really liked about Mission Church. Was sure, you know, they did have a box, you know, that if you wanted, congregants could don't could give to the church if they wanted. But they basically left it up to the rich members of the church, which there really weren't many, but especially rich donors. Cause you know, especially one of the pastors, um the one who's staying. Um, he knows a lot of very rich people. I mean, he's Fucking rich himself, like obscenely rich. I want to make that clear. You know that pastor is fucking obscenely rich, um, and you know he's a uh, financial guy. But yeah, you know it's like he does like you know like finances, and he actually like runs the finances of some of the richest people in the state of Indiana. Like he literally works with you know people you know with players on the Indianapolis Colts, the Indiana Pacers, you know. Um, you know, you know, he works with, you know, a lot of government officials, um, you know, just really rich people who live in the state, some of the richest people in the state, like, like if you're a millionaire in Indiana, there's a good chance you work with him, you know. And so he knows a lot of these people, and he actually is able to get a lot of them to donate to the church. So the church is able to survive, you know, very much off the backs of a lot of these, like, 
literal millionaires who don't even go to the church. And that was one of the things I liked, you know? Like, sure, you know, the poor who went to the church could give if they wanted, but the church did not really um, survive off it. The poor basically gave, who went to the church basically gave nothing. Like, the church, if it was just, you know, reliant on, you know, the congregants, the church would have been shut down so long ago. Uh, the church could not sustain itself. It's really basically off the pastors themselves giving a few rich members of the church. And, you know, especially a lot of rich donors who don't even go to the church but believe in its mission. Basically, it's almost completely self-reliant on the church, on the rich. That was another thing I did like about that church. Um, and it's how it should be. Should be the rich supplying for these churches, not the poor. We shouldn't be expecting the poor to do these things. It's fucking evil. The poor are struggling enough as it is. Don't make them give more. If they want to, then they can. You know, but don't force it on them. Continuing on, from the 6th century, the clergy imposed a special tax, the tithe, tenth part of the crops, to be paid to the church. This tax crushed the people like a heavy burden. In the course of the Middle Ages, it became a real scourge to the peasants oppressed by serfdom. So, Because basically, I mean, understand, so why are you living under feudalism? You know, they were already giving, you know, to their feudal lords, you know, a shit ton. But now, they're not only expected that, but they're now also expected to give a bunch to the clergy. So basically, they were oppressed by two different surf, two different feudal systems. The church feudal system, and, you know, the political economic feudal system. That's basically what it was. That's really what it was. Um... But they saw the priests ally themselves with their other exploiters, princes, nobles, moneylenders. In the Middle Ages, while the working people sank into poverty through serfdom, the church grew richer and richer. Besides its height and other taxes, the church benefited at this period from great donations. Legacies made by rich debauchees of both sexes who wished to make up at the last moment for their life of sin. They gave and made over to the church money, houses, entire villages with her serfs, and other ground rents or customary labor dues. So in other words, it, there were some churches, you know, some clergy who were literal feudal lords, you know, where the church itself was literally controlling these serfdoms. You know, because they were giving them to them by, by you know, feudal lords who wanted to make up for a life of crime, you know, like... Basically, here's how it went. I'm going to live my life to the fullest. I'm going to be as disgusting, horrible, exploitative of a person. I am going to get drunk. I am going to go out, you know. Yeah, you know. Do whatever the fuck I want, you know. Rape women, you know. Um, you know, brutalize my own workers, you know. Send out my men to fight useless wars just to get me money. And then, just before I die... I'm just going to magically turn myself to Christ, you know, give a shit ton of money and all that stuff. And hopefully I get to go to heaven then. Be honest, that sounds a lot like today's people. A lot of today's people. Um, how many, you know, people who are really well off and didn't see a need for Christ 
come to Christ at the end of her life after living a after living, you know, you know, living a life of debauchery, then like, oh, pit, poor pity me, you know, I'm so sorry, and I'm, I'm gonna come to my knees now at the end of my life, so I'm gonna go to heaven. I'm so sorry now. Some things never change, my friends. Some things never change. Continuing on, in this way, the church acquired enormous wealth. At the same time, the clergy ceased to be the administrator of the wealth which the church had entrusted it. It openly declared in the 12th century by formulating a law which said it came from Holy Scripture that the wealth of the church belongs not to the faithful, but is the individual property of the clergy and of its chief, the Pope, above all. Oh yeah, man, the, the, uh, totally the way that God, Jesus intended it, man. Uh, totally the way, man. Uh, you know, um, you know, like, you know, you know, you, you know that time when there was that 5,000 who were listening to Jesus, um, and they all got hungry, and, you know, and they found, you know, some loaves and fish. Jesus took it for all for himself, you see, because, I mean, he's the teacher, he needs the energy to keep preaching. You know, I mean, the guy had to sp speak pretty fucking loud for them to all to hear. I mean, my God, can you imagine the energy? Especially because he was probably teaching for hours on end. I mean, guy needs energy. I mean, so, and, and so of course he kept it all for himself, obviously. And then the 5,000 just said they're starving because, well, I mean, why shouldn't they? It's for duty to give to him. Yeah, man, it's totally the way uh, Jesus intended it, man. Uh, what a way to be, you know, to take care of your flock than to say, fuck you, I get all the money so I can get rich. You know, a great way to take care of the flock, man. Continue <sighs> on. Ecclesiastical positions... Therefore, it offer. Sorry, ecclesiastical positions therefore offered the best opportunities to obtain large revenue. Good, each ecclesiastic disposed of the property of the church as if it were his own, and largely endowed from it his relatives, sons, and grandsons. By this means, the goods of the church were pillaged and disappeared into the hands and the families of the clergy. For that reason, the popes declared themselves to be the sovereign proprietors of the fortunes of the church and ordained the celibacy of the clergy in order to keep it intact and to prevent their patrimony from being dispersed. In other words, you know why monks and nuns and the bishops are all in all that shit is supposed to be um, 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 celibate? Not because... Do you believe that there's any biblical order for it? No, it's just so that, you know, they don't just sit there and, you know, pass down their wealth, you know, don't get rich and just uh, strictly to create a rich family, you know, become a rich, powerful family. Like, can't do that if you can't have kids. It was literally just a measure to stop people from creating family dynasties using the church.
Look, here's the thing. If you have to go so far as to prevent your clergy from having children, just so that they don't can't exploit the church in a certain way, I mean, even then, not completely stop them from exploiting church, but you know, just stop them from having creating these family little family dynasties off the backs of the congregants. Don't you think that's maybe the system that's in place that's the problem? Like, this kind of seems like a band-aid on top of the wound. You know, you have a big gaping wound in your leg, you know. Um, and you just, you know, just toss a band-aid on it, you know. No button, you know. Don't stitch it up, you know. Don't actually treat the wound, you know. Just, just toss some cloth on it. It'll be fine. You know, don't change the system. You know, we'll just, you know, do something to try to make people ignore that the system itself is corrupt. That's basically what we're doing. Because they still wanted to get rich. But they had to do something that made it look more fair, you know. So we didn't, so that there wouldn't be a revolution among the congregants. Um, let's see. Continuing on. Celibacy was decreed in the 11th century, but it was not put into practice until the 13th century. In view of the opposition of the clergy. Yeah, gee, I wonder why the clergy didn't like that. Um, to be fair, for good reason, but you know, I mean, in some ways, you know. If somebody wants to have a family, they should, but unfortunately they're using it to enrich family unjustly. Um, anyway, further to prevent the dispersal of the church's wealth, in 1297, Pope Boniface, Boniface, um, is that a 5 or a 10? I'm going to say it's a 5. I think that's a 5. I think that's going to be Pope Boniface the 8th. I think that's what it is. Yeah, we're going to go with that. We're going to go with Pope Boniface the 8th. Uh, forbade ecclesiastics to make a present of her incomes to layman without permission of the Pope. Yeah, I'm certain that's what Jesus would want. Thus the church has accumulated enormous Basically, this was basically for compromise, you know. Um, you know, like... You know, like, basically, I mean, okay, it wasn't a compromise. It was a way to make sure that it stayed in a tight realm, to make sure they couldn't spread the wealth, you know, because they wanted to make sure that they had all the money. Just fucking despicable, man. Just fucking despicable. Thus, the church has accumulated enormous wealth, especially in arable lands, and the clergy of all Christian countries became the most important land proprietor. It often possessed a third or more than a third of all lands of the country. Jeez. The peasant people paid not only the labor dues, but the tithe as well, and that not only on the lands of the princes and the nobles, but on enormous tracts of where they worked directly for the bishops, archbishops, parsons, and covens. Among the mighty lords of feudal times, the church appeared as the greatest exploiter of all. 
In France, for example, at the end of the 18th century, before the Great Revolution, the clergy possessed the fifth part of the all territory of all the country with an annual income of about 100 million francs. This highest paid by the proprietors amounted to 23 million. This sum went to fatten 2,800 prelates and bishops, 5,600 superiors and priors, 60,000 parsons and curates, and 24,000 monks and 26,000 nuns who filled the cloisters. Wow. This army of priests was freed from taxation and from the requirement to perform military service. In times of quote-unquote calamity, war, bad harvest, epidemics, the church paid to the state treasury a quote-unquote voluntary tax, which never exceeded 16 million francs. Okay, like how today our churches don't have to pay taxes. Hmm. Quite interesting. Yeah, it's literally just a fucking holdover, people. It's all it is. It's just a holdover from the exploitive system that they created, especially during the Middle Ages, during the, during the feudalism. This is why churches should be paying taxes. One of the many, many reasons why. Make the church pay taxes, people. Please, for the love of God. The clergy, thus privileged, formed with the nobility a class living on the blood and sweat of the serfs. The high posts in the church, and those which paid best, were distributed only to the nobles and remained within the hands of the nobility. Consequently, in this period of serfdom, the clergy was the faithful ally of the nobility, giving it support and helping it to oppress the people, to whom it offered nothing but sermons, according to which they would re should remain humble and resign themselves to their lot. Oh, just like today. When the country and town proletariat rose up against oppression and serfdom, it found in the clergy a ferocious opponent. It is also true, even within the church itself, it existed two classes. The higher clergy who engulfed all the wealth in the great mass of the county par country persons whose modest livings brought in more, no more than 500 francs to 2,000 francs a year. This, therefore, this unprivileged class revolted against the superior clergy, and in 1789, during the Revolution, it joined up with the people to fight against the power of the lay and ecclesiastical nobility. So yeah, that is everything I have for today. Um, that's the end of part four of this uh, article. Uh, next week, we'll be doing part five. Uh, and then the week after that, parts it will be ending with parts uh, six and seven. So, yeah, I can't wait. Um, and I already found another series to do after this. Um, after we finish up the, the series on socialism and the churches, we'll be uh, going over um, the agenda, gender accelerationist manifesto. I believe that's what it's called. Let me make sure of that. Because right, I downloaded it. Yes. The Gender Accelerationist Manifesto is what we're doing after this series. Because, yeah, Thursday is much more topical days than the Monday episodes, which are much more general. Um, but, yeah, seriously, if, you, if, if, if there are any topics you would love to hear me address head on, or, you know, article, you know, or, like, you know, writings or articles, you know, on being trans or, you know, the church, you know, that you feel like should be 
address, uh, just send it to me because that's kind of what I want to focus uh, Thursdays on. So yeah, we're gonna so we got two more weeks of socialism into churches, and then the gen the gender accelerationist manifesto. So anyway, thank you all for listening so much. I would love to hear from you all. Um, you know, in into the show show notes and uh, YouTube description. Uh, you can find a link to send me a voice message that can be played on the show. Um, you know, but also contact me. I love hearing from you all. I really do. So please, please contact. I love, I want to hear from you. You know, especially, you know, if it, you know. Also, you know, I'd love to hear feedback, you know, or just, you know, just say hi, you know. Or if you're dealing with something, we'd love to hear, you know. Got questions, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. Even, you know, just say hi, you know. Um... You know, you can support the show, Patreon, Ko-Fi, Subscribestar, or Cash App Venmo. If you subscribe, you can subscribe monthly on Ko-Fi, Subscribestar, and Patreon. Get, you know, episodes early and ad free. And also get, um, if you do five bucks a month, exclusive episodes, which are generally more entertainment focused. You know, you just kind of talk about the things in entertainment that you've been reading, watching, listening to. Uh, much shorter episodes, but, you know, just kind of me. Talking about entertainment stuff, for the most part. And some some videos from time to time. So, anywho, that is everything I got for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful day. Peace.